Fathers like to fix things. Now admittedly, this is not one of my strong suits as a husband and a dad, but it is something that I am trying very hard to improve. And I want to improve because that's what fathers do. We try to fix things. When something is broken, we fix it. When something is destroyed, we rebuild it. And I believe that when fathers do this, they are actually reflecting something of the character of our Father in heaven. Because the God that we worship is a God who also likes to fix things. He does not leave things broken. And Paul is going to remind us in our text today, as we continue through our Ephesian sermon series, of how God is using His Son in His plan for fixing everything. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, please. Ephesians chapter 1, we will read verses 7 through 10 together. Ephesians chapter 1, I would invite you to please, when you've gotten there, would you stand for the reading of God's word. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. Hear the words of the Lord. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Amen. This bars the reading of God's word. Would you please be seated? Paul's use of pronouns in the passage that we just read is admittedly a little bit sloppy. It can be difficult, as a matter of fact, to go throughout this entire introduction and read all personal pronoun references, so references to him, his, and trace them all and connect them to only one person. Paul sort of flips on us throughout this in many ways, and we'll see that more in the weeks coming up. But here it can be kind of confusing, so let's just set the record straight. In verse 7, we are told that in somebody, in him we have redemption, and we know since it's through his blood, we know that that's Jesus Christ. So it's in Christ that we have redemption through his blood. So the in him, in verse 7, is a reference to the very last word of verse 6, the beloved. Verse 6 just told us that God's dearly beloved is the one in whom we have all the grace of God. And so he picks up on that beloved one and he says, it's in the beloved that we have the forgiveness of sins. So the first two hymns or his in verse 7 are a reference to Jesus, but then he quickly switches back to the Father. He quickly switches back, so all the other five personal pronouns after that are a reference to the Father. The first two are of Jesus, and the second two are of the Father. And so all that means for us is that Paul is continuing to do this week what he did last week. And that is that he is continuing to, to, to with special attention to the Father as the divisor of these plans and the dispenser of grace, he is continuing to show us how God is blessing us with grace through His Son, Jesus Christ, and only through His Son, Jesus Christ. The grace that God gives us is found nowhere else but in the person of Jesus Christ. And this week, Paul makes sure to tell us that this isn't just any old grace we're talking about. We're not, we use that word grace so much in the Christian life, we, we just kind of blow by it, don't we? So Paul makes sure to elaborate on the kind of grace that we receive in Jesus Christ. And notice what he says in verses 7 through 8. 
In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Why? Why did God do something so amazing like forgive us through the blood of Christ? Well, this was because according to the riches of his grace, verse 8, which he lavished upon us. Paul describes the grace of God that we receive in Christ as a rich grace which we are lavished in. This is Paul's way in the Greek language of communicating that God's grace is incomprehensible and inexhaustible. The grace of God is beyond your ability to fully comprehend and you could never outrun it. The grace of God is an ocean whose depth can never be plumbed. You can't get to the bottom of it. It is an inexhaustible, incomprehensible grace that we have received in Christ Jesus. And therefore, Paul is again continuing to tell us what God the Father is doing with His church. And he is continuing to remind us that it's all happening in and through and by the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he continues that train of thought, we learned some new things this week. We learned, as I see it, three new things about what the grace of God in Jesus Christ is accomplishing. We're going to see three things that the grace of God only in Christ Jesus actually does, what it actually accomplishes. What is this rich, lavish grace doing in the world? In other words, what is Jesus doing in the world? And here are those three things. The grace of God in Christ redeems, reveals, and restores. The grace of God redeems, and it reveals And it restores, and it is all happening in and through and by Jesus Christ. So let's look at those three elements today. First, the grace of God in Christ redeems. It redeems. Look at verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. So the first spiritual blessing we see in this text today, the grace of God in Christ accomplishing is the blessing of redemption. Christians can be described as those who have been redeemed. Now, what does it mean to be redeemed? What does it look like to be redeemed? Well, thankfully, Paul clarifies for us. In case you're unfamiliar with that vocabulary, Paul tells us very quickly, what does it mean to be redeemed? What does it look like? Well, he tells us, verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, that is, the forgiveness of our trespasses. To be redeemed is to be forgiven of your sins. You have sinned against a holy God. And in Christ, through His blood, you have been forgiven. God does not hold your sins against you any longer. You've been forgiven. If you are redeemed, that means you have possessed the forgiveness of your sins. Now, it is interesting, though, to do like a word study on this word redeemed and see how is this word redeem or redemption, how does it accomplish the forgiveness of sins? What relationship does the forgiveness of sins have to this word redeem? And I bring that up because I notice this this concept of redemption, this concept of redeeming something, has in the English language primarily become a theological word. We don't really use it outside of theology all that much, though we do. You might describe your favorite character in a book as needing redemption. Or sometimes you redeem a coupon. Or you redeem the value of an item that was lost. So we use the word redeem, but in my mind... We, we sort of specifically associate it with theology. And so I think in that we sort of lose its technical definition. 
What, what does it technically mean to redeem something? What does the word redemption mean? Well, believe it or not, in the Bible, the word has two different definitions. The word is used in two different ways. The more common way is a very broad definition. It is a very, very broad term, and it simply means to save something from danger. Anytime something was in immediate present danger and was rescued from danger, that thing has been redeemed. That's actually how the Bible uses it most of the time. So anytime someone saves you from any kind of danger, they have contextually in that scenario become your redeemer. They've saved you from danger. And we could see how that definition fits in this text. It would fit in this text. If the idea being that your sins are a danger to you, or that the law of God, because of your sins, the justice of God is a danger to you. God is going to judge you for your sins, but Christ has forgiven you, and he has now rescued you from your sins. He's now rescued you from judgment. So that definition would certainly fit this passage. But there is a, another definition, a more narrow one, a more unique one, that I think Paul is specifically using here, and I think the context demands it. And to redeem something can also mean to pay a ransom. Right? If someone were to kidnap the president's children and say, you need to pay this to get them back, and they make the payment, that would be a redemption. Anytime you pay something that was owed and restore back to you something that was rightfully yours in the first place, that's a ransom, and the Bible will sometimes use the word redeem as a synonym for ransom. In other words, a ransom is when you pay a price to get something back. You pay a price to get something back. And I think that's specifically how the Apostle Paul is using the word redemption here. And here's why. Because he doesn't just say Christ redeems us. He doesn't just say we are redeemed in Christ. But he goes out of his way to say something very specific. And what is it in verse 7? In him we have redemption through his blood. We have redemption only through the blood of Christ. What Paul is telling us is that you can believe in Jesus Christ all day long. If he doesn't die on a cross, you're not saved. You still have sins. It is not merely being in Christ that saves, but it's because Christ has done something that being in him saves. And what is it that he's done? He's shed his blood. Paul is telling us that Christ, Jesus, paid the price for your sins. And the reason I say this is because the concept of ransom is very intimately tied to the concept of sacrifice. Paul is telling us that a sacrifice took place that accomplishes our redemption. The logic there being that without the sacrifice, you couldn't be redeemed. So what does that mean? The sacrifice paid for you. Jesus bought you with his blood. It was needed. That's why, by the way, in case you think I'm implying too much, just to let you know, this is a direct quote from the book of Hebrews. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness is to free us. Forgiveness, no, let me put it this way. Forgiveness is free, but when we say that forgiveness is, is free, I use the word free there the way the government uses the word free. When I say something's free, I use it the way the government does, and that means someone else is paying for it. It doesn't come out of your pocket, but someone else is paying for it. That's how the government uses the word free, and that's how I mean the word free when I say forgiveness is free. It's free to you. You don't have to pay for forgiveness, but it's not free. 
And it's not cheap either. You want to know what forgiving your sins cost? The death of the beloved. The blood of Jesus Christ. As we just sang, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Jesus paid your ransom by a sacrificial, substitutionary death on your behalf. He paid a price for you. And by the way, the Apostle Paul elaborates. He, he, he's, very, he's not embarrassed by this theology. Two different times in the book of 1 Corinthians, he says this very explicitly. He says in chapter 6, 19, You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. And then he says later again in chapter 7, 23, For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. He's saying, you belong to God now. God owns you now, and so you need to live like that. But what did God do to own you? He paid for you. He purchased you. With the costly blood of his precious son. The first thing the grace of God does is it redeems us. By the blood of Christ, we have been forgiven. But the other thing that the grace of God in Christ does is it doesn't just redeem, it reveals. Jesus Christ is revelatory. He brings revelation. It reveals. Look at verses 8 through 9 with me. Which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. You see, the grace of God reveals, according to verse 9, God has made known a mystery to us. There, there was a mystery, according to this text, that was only known to God, and this mystery was his purpose to do something with Jesus Christ, and that mystery was only available to God. No one else knew about it, but with the coming of Christ, he has made it known to me and to you. God has revealed in all wisdom and insight this mystery. Well, we've been talking about definitions, so let's continue that. What do we mean by the word mystery? Well, like redemption in the Bible, mystery has two different definitions that it can use. One of the ways that the word mystery is used in Scripture is to speak of something which is beyond human comprehension. Something that's just too deep for us to, to possibly understand, the Bible will sometimes refer to that as a mystery. Meaning it's not a contradiction. It's, it's something that's logical, but it's just, it's just beyond your capability. It's a mystery. You'll, you'll never know that. And that's probably the more common way we use that word in English. We usually, if something is a mystery, what we mean is you, just, you don't know and you probably never will. You probably can't know it, right? That's a mystery. And the Bible does sometimes use the word that way. But the more often way that the New Testament uses the word, and the way I'm arguing for is used in the book of Ephesians, is something slightly different. And a mystery is not necessarily something beyond your comprehension, but it's something that was once hidden in God and has now been revealed. It, it, a mystery is something that was not available to you unless God explicitly told it to you. It's a revealed mystery. In other words, to, to think about it in a really simple way, it's kind of like a divine secret. It's something that only God knows that he eventually tells a certain class of people. The idea that God has made known to us with all wisdom and insight the mystery of his will, what Paul is essentially saying there is God is whispering a secret to you. Hey guys, guess what? Guess what I've been up to all along? Guess what I'm actually doing? 
God is telling you secrets, which, by the way, is an immediate and intimate sign of our friendship with God. Do you tell secrets to strangers? Do you tell secrets to your enemies? No, you tell secrets to trusted people. You tell secrets to friends. You tell secrets to people you are reconciled with. God tells us secrets. He reveals in all wisdom and insight the mystery of his plans to us. He reveals this amazing gospel set forth in Christ. And when Christ came, he made that known. Things that the Old Testament prophets and saints didn't even know. Things that the angels didn't even know. Christ came and said, let me tell you about who my God is and what he's up to. Christ lets us in on God's secret. It reveals in all wisdom and insight the mysteries of God. And it's important for us to understand that it is in fact revealed in all wisdom and insight. The gospel, the mystery of God, is in fact the wisdom of God. And this is why this should fill our hearts with gratitude and wonder when we realize that because of Christ, God has revealed to us not just something he knew, but the greatest, most profound, most amazing, most beautiful mystery a person could possibly discover. Something that takes incredible wisdom and insight, a wisdom and insight beyond your comprehension, God has given it to you. He has revealed with wisdom and insight this mystery. To see just how amazing this is, keep your markers here in Ephesians and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. Turn back just a couple books, 1 Corinthians, to chapter 2. If we had time, we would read chapter 1 as well. Chapter 1 is very important leading into chapter 2, but we don't have time for that. But we are going to read all of chapter 2 together. It's a long chapter, but it's really important. To see how important this concept of God revealing his mystery to us in wisdom and insight. Paul elaborates on this in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians. Notice what he says. And when I came to you, brothers and sisters, did, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God." Yet, among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen nor ear heard, no the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. 
The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. I wish I could ring this out in all of its glory, but we obviously don't have time to do that today. But I want to just make note of a few things. First and foremost, notice how the mystery of the gospel, according to this text, is not made known to everybody. When we talk about God making his, his mysteries known to us, we're not talking about just the public demonstration of Christ that everyone has access to. We are talking about God actually opening up our hearts and minds to understand who Christ is and what he's done. That understanding, that revelation, that mystery comes to you from God. The rulers of Jesus' age didn't have it. When they heard the gospel, it was foolishness to them. And that's why they killed Jesus. They didn't see anything special in that man. Because God didn't tell them his secret. In fact, verse 14 tells us the natural person cannot understand the secret. The natural man is consumed with what sounds brilliant and wise to men. But the gospel comes to us as a secret and hidden, revealed, divine wisdom. God is so gracious to make known to us the wisdom of his gospel. And here's why I wanted to spend so much time on this. We, we could have moved on from this point a long time ago. Here's why. I think that this is an incredibly practical doctrine for Christians to know and believe. I think this should affect your life every single day. And here's how. Because I have learned in my short years of life how Satan loves to make Christians feel dumb. Satan loves to make Christians feel dumb. The world wants to get you out of Christianity by using your own ego against you. They want you to feel stupid. Notice how Christianity is presented in the secular world. It's always presented as this outdated, ultra-conservative myth that the enlightened among us have all come to see is obviously not true. Right? Guys, come on. Obviously, a snake didn't talk in the garden. Get real. Snakes don't talk. It's a silly child's fairy tale. They want to make you feel stupid. I cannot tell you how often I've heard secularists refer to the Bible as a bronze-aged book written by goat herders. Ironically, that's not even accurate. Most of the Bible was written before and after the Bronze Age, and most of the authors of the Bible were not shepherds. It's not even accurate. But we don't even question it because we feel the impact of it. I believe this old, outdated religion, this old, outdated book, which has been proven untrue by science, I'm a moron. And everyone knows how terrible it feels to be the dumbest person in a room. And so we leave Christianity because we don't want to be looked at as this simplistic, unenlightened, backwater hick. So we move towards, towards the science and the philosophy so we don't have to look stupid. The world will always malign your views until your ego pushes you out of the faith. When the truth makes you feel stupid... That is when you will be the most tempted to embrace a lie. 
Whenever the truth makes you feel stupid, that is when you will be the most tempted to embrace what you know is a lie. And so let Ephesians 1 and let 1 Corinthians 2 be your reminder that the mystery which has been revealed to you is not the wisdom of men, but it is the wisdom of God. Do you want to be smart? Do you want to know amazing things? You don't need a PhD. You need to come to Christ by faith. It is in Christ that the greatest act and display of divine wisdom has ever been revealed. You want to know the most important, most profound, most brilliant mystery the world can possibly know? You don't need to go to school. You need to come to Christ. You need to come hear the secrets of God, the wisdom of God which confounds and shames the wise, according to 1 Corinthians 1. As a matter of fact, Paul actually says this very explicitly in the book of Colossians when he prays that the Colossians as a church would reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, and in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You want to be known for wisdom and knowledge? Come to Christ. Come to Christ. That is where the greatest of all mysteries has been revealed. So no matter how much the world mocks you, you need to remember you have the secret and hidden wisdom of God. The way in which God found a way to redeem sinners and in the process showcase His mercy, showcase His love without ever compromising His justice or His goodness. Contemplate that for a little bit. Talk about that for a little bit. That's the wisdom of God. You don't need to feel stupid to be a Christian. You have God's wisdom. Why? Because in Christ, God's grace reveals. It redeems and it reveals. The last thing it does, number three, it restores. Look at verse 10. Go back, forgive me, if you haven't already, turn back to Ephesians chapter 1 and look at verse 10. This mystery that was set forth in Christ, which has been revealed to us, is what? It was set forth in Christ, verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. The plan of God itself is also what the grace of God accomplishes. In other words, the grace of God doesn't just reveal to us this awesome plan, but never do it. <laughs> right? It doesn't just say, here's this awesome mystery, but I'm not actually going to do this. He reveals this amazing plan to us, but the greatest grace is that he's actually going to do it. Or actually, according to the verse, he's already done it. The grace of God restores. God in Christ is restoring everything. All things in heaven and all things on earth are being united together by this plan God set forth in Christ. He is bringing everything back together. It was, as the text tells us, a plan for the fullness of time. What does that mean? This is a reference to all the time leading up to Christ. It's a reference to the law and the prophets. It's a reference to everything essentially that has been happening in human history up to the birth of Life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. The life of Christ is the gospel. 
right? The gospel is that he was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, rose from the dead, and ascended onto high. That's the gospel. That's the advent of Christ I'm speaking of. And that plan that came in Christ in his advent fulfilled all the times. It made the fullness of the times revealed. In other words, when Christ showed up and the gospel happened, every single believer was supposed to look back at history and go, I get it now. <laughs> it all makes sense now. I guess God was actually in control the whole time. I see it now. I, everything that's happened beforehand, I see the purpose now. I see why God did it. It, it fulfills the times. It's a crown on all the times that came beforehand. As a matter of fact, Paul says this elsewhere. In the book of Galatians, he says this, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so they might receive adoption as sons. Christ came at exactly the moment that the Father planned and wanted. And when he came and when the gospel happened, it fulfilled the times. It was a plan for the fullness of of times. So all the former covenants, all the former Old Testament scriptures all find their fulfillment in the gospel. I love the way John Calvin described it. He says this, let human presumption restrain itself and in judging the succession of events, let it bow to the providence of God. In other words, what he's saying, when you look at the past, don't speculate as to why you think things happened. Don't speculate. Don't try to figure it out. Just submit yourself and know God was in control. He did it all. Bow to the providence of God. Restrain your presumption and bow to the providence of God. God was in control of everything. And if you don't believe us, look at how everything so perfectly led to the fulfillment of Christ. Christ's gospel proves to us that God has been up to something in history. This was a plan for the fullness of times. But guess what? The beauty is that this plan is not just something that fulfills and has relevance to the past. It's something that still has relevance. It's still accomplishing something. It's still restoring even to this day. And why do I say that? Because notice what the plan is supposed to do. It's not just a plan for the fulfillment of times, but this gospel which fulfills these times is supposed to what? Verse 10, the second half. Unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. In other words, Jesus did not just come to earth to redeem sinners. He did come to do that. That's a huge and important part of the plan. But he did not just come to forgive some sinners. Jesus came by the plan of God to fix everything. He's fixing everything. He's not just saving some sinners. He is reversing the curse. He's reversing the fall. He is reuniting everything and bringing it back to become as exactly as it should be. In other words, think of he is the one who comes in and he grabs every piece of shrapnel from the explosion of the fall and by his power and goodness, he is bringing those pieces back and reuniting them. This is a plan to unite all things in Christ. What, what, the idea here is that at the fall, creation became broken and disordered. 
And this is not to say that God ever lost providential control over the world, but in a certain and in a very real sense, God lost his creation. They were not in right harmony together. Creation does not relate to God the way it should be. It's broken, it's dislocated, we have been separated. And that's why the New Testament, by the way, says that all people, when we are born, we're going to see in Ephesians 2, we are born children of wrath. You see in the Gospels, we are born children of the devil. We're supposed to belong to God, but we don't. It's broken. It's disordered. And all of creation is actually disordered. And so the sacrifice of Christ, the gospel, is not just about forgiving sins. It's about fixing and restoring and bringing all of the created order back to its right relationship in Christ to God. Christ is God's agent to refix everything and say, there you go. I fixed it. He's making all things right Paul says this in Colossians chapter 1 when he says, For in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. John Calvin also, to quote him again, I love the way he puts it, The proper condition of creatures is to keep close to God. Such a gathering together as might bring us back to regular order, the apostle tells us, has been made in Christ. Formed into one body, we are united to God and closely connected with each other. Without Christ, on the other hand, the whole world is shapeless chaos and frightful confusion. We are brought into actual unity by Christ alone. You see how he is fixing the fall and bringing all things back in order. Now, believe it or not, there are some who think I'm being very dramatic right now. There are many interpreters, and I'm just saying because I talk loudly, my message, they would say, is being dramatic right now. There are some interpreters who think that verse 10 is not a reference to all of creation. It's only a reference to believers. And the argument is, is that the blood of Christ can't, how did, Jesus didn't die for rocks, right? He died for people. He didn't die for stars. He didn't die for animals. He didn't die for the creation. He only died for people. So all things in heaven on earth, they say, it must be believers who are alive on earth and believers who are already dead in heaven. He's uniting all of them into Christ. That's possible, but I, I just don't think that's right. I, I, I think that's a big stretch in how we understand heaven and earth. I think those are supposed to be all-encompassing phrases. I think when Jesus said, all authority has been given to me, both in heaven and on earth, he wasn't just talking about the church. I think in the Lord's Prayer, when we ask that the Lord's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're not just asking God to rule over the church. I think all throughout Scripture, heaven and earth is supposed to encompass all things, not just believers, not just the Christian church. But additionally, I think we have evidence from outside of Scripture that it is absolutely Pauline theology that the gospel would be so powerful that it wouldn't just save sinners, but it would actually somehow be used to restore everything. And here's where I get that. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And I will slow down. It's hard to talk about everything being made right and not get a little excited. Romans chapter 8, let's read verses 18 through 23 together. And by the way, before we read this, you need to keep in mind, if you don't believe me, you should go home and just read all of Romans 8. It's one of the best chapters in the Bible. And you will see that Romans 8 is ultimately about the forgiveness of sinners. 
It's about the salvation of individual sinners. It's about the Christian church being saved. That's the overall context. But notice this little snippet that Paul crams into the middle of a conversation about Christians being saved. Verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now what is a hope that is seen? For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Notice how Paul makes a clear distinction here between the children of God being redeemed and the rest of creation. And he's very clear that with the glory of the children of God is going to come with it the glorification of all creation. You can't have the glory of the children existing in an unglorified broken world. That would affect our glory. So creation itself, the whole creation, is waiting for our redemption, that day of glorification. Because then it will be set free from its bondage. Then it will be made right too. You see how the salvation of sinners is intimately tied with the restoration of all creation. Jesus did not just come to fix the church. He did not just come to save the elect. He came to restore everything. Everything, everything that is broken will be fixed as he will conquer sin and has conquered death and will subdue fallen angels and will subdue sinners and he will glorify creation and he will glorify man and he will hand to God the Father a beautified, glorified, fixed creation. By the way, an additional benefit of my interpretation is that it has very anti-Gnostic teachings to it. We've talked about Gnosticism before. Gnosticism was the ancient heresy that basically said matter, material is bad, spiritual is good. And many people, even in our day and age, unthinkingly have very, a very Gnostic flavor to their religion. Like earthy, physical, tangible things are, are not ultimately good, but what really matters is the spiritual realm and spiritual life. That's, that's what really matters is the spirit. And many people imagine heaven even as just leaving the physical world and then going off into a spiritual world somewhere else. But that's Gnosticism. You see, in Christianity, when God made everything, when he made the world, he called it very good. God united the spiritual and the matter together and the Bible does not tell us he regrets doing that. God does not regret that. Jesus himself took on flesh. Jesus himself united himself to flesh and the Bible tells us he's going to keep that forever. Jesus is going to have a human body, a physical fleshly body for all eternity. You think Jesus thinks the material is bad and icky? You see, Christianity is not about escaping material world. It's the exact opposite. It's about better uniting it. It's about bringing it into better relationship, into closer relationship, in a more glorified relationship. Heaven is not going to be a spiritual realm. It's going to be more earthy than anything you've ever imagined. There's going to be more color and more taste and more beauty and more glory. 
God is not trying to free us from creation. He's trying to unite us to creation. And as we read, what no eye has seen or ears heard can even imagine what God has planned for those who love him. God in Christ is a good father. And like a good father, he plans to fix that which is broken. He plans in Christ to fix everything. And because Christ is a glorious Savior who redeemed us, who revealed God to us, who is Lord of heaven and earth, we have great confidence and hope that this will, in fact, happen. 